Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio just is John, John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And, um, yes, all right. Uh, right, all right, John, would you like to start off? Yeah, sure, Chris. Uh, yeah, I thought I might speak a little bit about penalty rates. Uh, throughout this year, various right-wing commentators have been calling for the scrapping at least the reducing of penalty rates for people who work anti-social hours. Now the biggest mouthpiece of the ruling class is adding his voice. Speaking to Radio 3AW on Tuesday, Malcolm Turnbull claimed that Sunday penalty rates were a feature of an outdated economy. He stated, quote, The only reason they are different, I assume, is history. Turnbull is an expert on speaking with a forked tongue. However, we can assume that by history, he means the Christian tradition of having Sunday as a day of rest. Despite the fact that Turnbull claims Christian status when it suits him, he does appear to believe that working-class Australians' uh, desire for separate... Uh, desire... Oh, sorry, my, my writing here, sorry about that. Working-class Australians' desire for some relaxation when their day of rest comes is... Um, is, is not to be given to them. He went on, quote, I think over time you will see a more flexible workplace, unquote. By this he means a more flexible workforce. Workers prepared to work all hours of day of night at the whim of a boss. Flexibility from the worker. Flexibility for the management. From the view, viewpoint of the ruling class, the ideal would be the 7-Eleven business plan. I think most of us know about the 7-Eleven business plan. Open all hours, high prices, low wages and poor conditions. That's the, what the word flexibility really means to the likes of Malcolm Turnbull and his friends. It is now obvious that the federal government is gearing up to attack penalty rates in the lead-up to the next election. This is one of the reasons I believe Turnbull was installed in a palace coup some weeks ago, to drive through the harsh measures demanded by business, which Abbott and Hawkey through their sheer ineptitude, couldn't drive through. The new employment minister was the aptly named Michaela Cash. She stated, quote, If there are fair and reasonable changes, you may well see the government take them to the next election. Turnbull, Cash and the business elite are not interested in what is fair and reasonable. They are determined to do what they can to increase profits at the expense of wages. Turnbull doesn't just represent the ruling class, he's one of them. With an estimated wealth of $180 million, I'm being conservative there. Yeah, I think it's 186, uh, but what's six million what's between six million? you and I? Two friends, yeah. An estimated wealth of $180 million, he is Australia's richest parliamentarian, after Clive Palmer. He is also the richest ever Australian Prime Minister, eclipsing Labour's Kevin Rudd, who was estimated to own about $50 million. Born with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth, Turnbull has increased his fortune through venture capitalism. 
The establishment media likes to portray him as a progressive, owing to his stance on a couple of social issues. Economically, he's just as reactionary as his much maligned predecessor. It has been suggested that Turnbull deserves a honeymoon period. He doesn't. Honeymoon periods follow weddings, possibly elections. The Australian people haven't elected this man, so there's no honeymoon. This man wants to strip away hard-won penalty rates from hard-working people who earn those penalty rates by working on Sundays. Most Sunday workers don't get them. But have a look at the wealthy such as Turnbull. He's happy to go to church or enjoy time with his family on a Sunday. He doesn't turn up to his job in Parliament on a Sunday, despite the fact that he gets some of the best wages and conditions imaginable. It is interesting, I've thought this for quite a while, it is interesting that when an essential group of workers, I mean really essential, such as nurses or garbage collectors, go on strike, everybody notices, and a lot of people complain. Yet when parliamentarians don't turn up for work for two weeks, do we know? Do we do we realize? Do we, we even care? We're relieved. We're relieved. It's a good thing, probably. You know, it's like if the military didn't turn yes, up, that's wait, right. it would be a good thing. The likes of Turnbull aren't just leaners. The likes of Turnbull and his class are parasites. As for the Labour Party leader, Bill Shorten, well, he's as lacking charisma as, as was Tony Abbott, but the important point is his, his stance on penalty rates. It may be, I, I'm not, I don't know, we'll have to see, I don't know what he's said in the past couple of days, but it may be that in order to differentiate his party from the Liberals, he will offer a less reactionary policy I haven't noticed so far but he's still not to be trusted in March of this year a deal was struck between South Australian business and the union representing retail workers to trade penalty rates for very slight pay rises Bill Shorten went out of his way to promise to, sorry, to praise the shop assistant union the SDA which did the deal with business Joining him was the Abbott's government's employment, then employment minister, Eric Abetz, who said the deal, quote, highlighted the benefits of encouraging workplaces to sit down and negotiate terms and conditions that uh, suit their specific needs, suit whose specific needs. Some people who actually were affected by the new deal gave a different point of view. Retail worker Michael Desari of Adelaide uh, condemned his own union for, quote, failing to represent workers' interests. There are ma- and he went on, he said, that a major union can work against us is a stab in the back for people like me who have been paying their fees for so long. It sets a bad precedent. This guy's been a member of the SDA for 10 years, right, right. paying his dues, and he's quite right, it does set a bad precedent. Bill Shorten is clearly uh, not to be trusted to defend penalty rates against these attacks by the Conservative forces. This hard-earned benefit can be traded for pay rises, but it's a very short-term fix. Over the long run, a slim pay rises can be whittled away in future negotiations, while the penalty rates, they'll start off by re- reducing them, but believe me, you me, they will want to scrap them, and of once they're they scrapped, they're going to be scrapped for a hell of a long time. Mm. Not in our lifetime we're going to get them back. It is worth noting that the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, which the South Australian um, business, 
which did the South Australian deal, is the same union, and you, you spoke about this a week or so ago, it's the same union which um, should represent the 7-Eleven workers. That's, that's their area. But they didn't know anything about the exploitation. D- didn't know anything about it. This, this union, you know how big this union is? They're the biggest union in the country. Yes, I know. 230,000 workers. I had to reread that. That's like a quarter million workers. Mm-hmm. It's a staggering amount. But the SDA was able to just turn a blind eye to some of the worst exploitation of low-paid workers that we've seen. Yet, it can do dodgy deals with business, which may indeed set a bad precedent. Now, um, workers in this country get it pretty bad, as we know, what workers around the world. But um, I got this email from the uh, International Union of Food Workers, and I'll just read this out. According to the International Union of Food Workers, the multinational drinks giant PepsiCo is violating the rights of a group of workers in West Bengal, India. These guys formed a trade union and were fired as a result. In 2013, workers at three warehouses handling only PepsiCo products registered their new union with the authorities. They were harassed and assaulted by company goons, and 162 out of 170 workers were fired. In May 2013, in response to national and international protests, they were offered their jobs back, but under conditions that stripped them of their human rights. They were told they could return to work only if they declared that they would never again join a union. They were then made to sign false statements, they were, they were told were legally binding and they were told to cut up their union cards and step on them as they walked back into the warehouses. Twenty of these workers who refused to surrender their rights were told they could not return to work and they would be blacklisted so that uh, other companies would know right, about this. Right. We'll, we'll put you out of a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, you're living. In, in, in West Bengal, <coughs> this could mean you should starve to death. PepsiCo even rejected an offer by the U.S. government to provide mediation of the dispute. Despite this, the IUF, the International Union of Food Workers, was to engage PepsiCo in a long and long but fruitless talks. Now, PepsiCo has now said that the workers can apply for warehouse jobs or jobs at the company's bottling plants, but offers no timetable, no remedy for earlier human rights abuses and no guarantees that the human rights will be respected in the future. This is just they can apply for the job. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it's no job necessarily. So if you do want to support these workers, and I think it's a good cause, you can go to the IUF website to do so, and the web address is www.iuf.org. IUF, is it? International Union of Food Workers. Right. uh, .org is there. All right, well, I want to tackle um, Syria, but I want to do it in the form of uh, some questions because obviously I can't deal with the whole Syrian situation. It's too complicated. But let's have a little look at what actually started the Syrian revolution. Well, it's got its roots mainly in the absence of democracy and social justice. It is a complete dictatorship. Uh, It's a killing machine dictatorship, the Assad regime. Uh, You have increasing social inequalities in Syria, impoverishment of the society, why high corruption was the rule through neoliberal and privatisation policies. At the beginning of the uprising in 2011, you had 30% of the people in Syria living under the poverty line and 30% just above. 
neoliberal policies, such as being implemented by the Abbott and uh, Turnbull governments, were implemented, especially with the arrival of Bashar al-Assad in 2000. More than 70% of the economy was in the hands of the private sector, with the particular type of crony capitalism that benefited the family and the people around Assad in mafia style. Neoliberal policies within Syria actually reinforced the authoritarian nature of the Assad regime, while the Assad family ruled more and more through the years as if the state was there to serve solely its interests. It's important to remind everyone that the uprisings in Syria for the first six months were completely peaceful. The protesters had slogans in various areas of Syria saying, we are not sulfacists, we are not Muslim Brotherhood, we are just Syrians and we want freedom. This was because the regime was accusing all the demonstrators of being Muslim fundamentalists or Islamic extremists. Actually, most of the slogans of the demonstrators were things like, we want democracy, we want the fall of the regime, the Syrian people won't kneel. Christians and Muslims and one, Sunni and al are one. That's what the demonstrators were saying in the first six months. After six months, you had defectors of the Syrian regime taking up arms. This was the establishment of the Free Syrian Army, which wasn't organised, nor was it supported by any outside country. It was mostly people from different regions taking up arms, trying to defend peaceful demonstrations. You also, of course, had various countries that promoted Islamic fundamentalist groups from different tendencies, Sulfists to Jihadists. These countries funded these groups. After a while, these groups became more well-funded, more well-equipped. At the same time, a lot of Islamic fundamentalist activities were liberated in the first three months by the Assad regime. Interestingly, they were released by the Assad regime to counter the secular protesters on the street. This let the fundamentalists develop, while democratic progressive activists were killed on a daily basis because the Assad regime wanted the dichotomy to be either us or the mad mullahs. Hmm. So anybody in between was likely to get the chop. ISIS was formally established in Syria in autumn of 2013 when al-Qaeda and ISIS broke their ties. First of all, the roots began with the US intervention in Iraq in 2003. Even before this, we have to look at the dictatorship of Hussein and its consequences on Iraqi society, because today part of the commanders of the ISIS are ex-Bathists from Saddam's army. You had the role of Saddam, the Saddam Hussein dictatorship, the invasion of Iraq, the destruction of Iraqi society, and definitely the establishment of a sectarian state after that in Iraq. At the same time, you have private networks of Saudi Arabia supporting very Islamic Sunni fundamentalist forces in Iraq. Most probably in the beginning, they funded al-Qaeda and da- Danesh, i.e., which is ISIS. ISIS yeah. Even though ISIS was supported by private networks of the Gulf monarchies, in 2011, it became very fastly independent and reversed. So ISIS was set up by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, but then it got too well-equipped and two... Uh, so no, Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein, it got out of control and it mm. stopped taking orders from the Gulf states. ISIS now doesn't have political or financial support from the monarchies or the Gulf. 
ISIS themselves fund themselves by selling oil, taxing people, selling archaeological pieces and various other stuff. ISIS is a mafia-style company today in terms of business and self-funding. The United States wants the imperialist status quo to remain the same in the region. That's their overwhelming need. This means not threatening Israel. It means not threatening the monarchies of the Gulf. Forget democracy. All these regional and international players want an end to the revolutionary process, which we saw a brief sign of with the Arab Arab Spring. Spring. Mm. Obviously, there can be contradictions between the various different actors, but at the end of the day, the United States wants to maintain an imperialist status quo in the Middle East, maintaining its interest in the region. This is why we should oppose all imperialist forces, American, Russian and others, and sub-imperialist powers like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Qatar Mm -hmm. and Turkey, because they all oppose the interests of the popular classes and we shouldn't choose one over the other because we consider it the lesser evil. Mm. The US, relatively speaking, has witnessed a weakening of its imperialist powers since 2003 with a defeat in Iraq and after with the economic crisis of 2008 and labour strikes as well. The United States has not at all, or only very, very slightly, supported Syrian revolutionaries, nor have they provided them with needed weapons, such as the anti-aircraft missiles demanded by revolutionaries in Syria. Less than 100, 100, less than 100 Syrians have been trained by the US. The military assistance of Russia, Iran and Hezbollah is a whole a new level in terms of boots on the ground, providing economic uh, weapons, economic, political and military assistance. Even in the documents of the US officials saying that they would provide arms to the Syrian revolutionaries, it wasn't in order to fight the Assad regime, it was in order to fight ISIS, because the Islamic State is an actor that can't be stabilised or controlled and cannot be dealt with in the stabilisation of the region. In other words, it's possible in the long term to reach some deal with Assad. ISIS, not possible. We shouldn't forget that Assad's regime collaborated (coughs) with Mm -hmm. the Second Gulf War in 1991. Yes. They collaborated in the bombardments of Iraq, Mm. especially with the US and the so-called war to liberate Kuwait. Syria was part of the coalition. Syria participated in the 2001 War on Terror, working with US security officials. In 1976... Syria intervened into Lebanon to crush the Palestinian resistance and the Lebanese national movements, which was a coalition of nationalist and leftist forces. This was done with the approval of the IS and even at the time with Israel as well. Israel have said that they don't want to see the fall of Bashar al-Assad regime. They want it to be weakened, but not uh, because they don't want... The Israelis have said that. Yes, they want it to be weakened, but they don't want it to see it fall because not a single bullet has been fired from the Syrian, from the occupied, occupied by the Israelis, the mm. Golan Heights, which mm. is actually mm. part of Syria. And the Israelis are grateful for the fact that in that time, their occupation has met no resistance at all from the Syrian government. Mm. No one has an interest, especially not the US, to see the overthrow of the Assad regime. A weakening they want, but not the overthrow of the regime. The US has played its general role to maintain its interests, the imperialist status quo. What about Israel's role? 
Well, the Golan Heights of part of Syria has been occupied since 1967, mm. while in addition, colonial settlements have been established by the Israeli. The population of the settlers is around 170,000 in the Golan Heights. Of course, Israel society is a settler colonial state, which is different from being just being a colonial state. The difference in the settler colonial state is that they don't necessarily have as a final object to exploit the indigenous people like a colonial state does, like the British in India. But a settler colonial state wants to put an end to the indigenous people, to wipe their existence from the face of the earth. This is what's happening in the United States and Australia, and in many perspectives, though not totally, in Palestine, where 800,000 Palestinians were kicked out by the Israeli settlers. Israel has been playing the, t the role of a tool of US imperialism since 1956. This means it intervenes in various countries in the region to attack progressive actors. Israel is a colonial, apartheid, racist state that has oppressed Palestinians for 60 years. The way to liberate the Palestinian people is to support the uprisings in the region because the road to the liberation of Palestine is the road to the liberation of Damascus, Saudi Arabia and all the rest of it. All these regimes have no interest of the Palestinian, in the Palestinians and have an interest in crushing the Palestinian people. Why? Because they are revolutionary and they disturb the status quo. So Israel is part of this imperialist status quo in serving US and Western interests and is directly or indirectly allied to the old regimes of the, uh, of the region to maintain the status quo. Yeah, go on. Um, so, okay. Yes, you have. I'll end me one second, then we can debate it. Regarding a solution to the Palestinian issue, I my view personally is that what we need is not the two-state theory, which is never going to work, and the Israelis are going to make sure it never works. We need a democratic, secular, socialist, binational state of Palestine, where everybody would be considered a citizen regardless of their religion, ethnicity or whatever. We must guarantee the right to all the Palestinian refugees. There needs to be a complete dismantlement of the current Israeli apartheid, colonial and racist state. In the new state to be created, Israeli Jews should be recognised as a people and they should have the right to stay in Palestine, but not to have an exclusive Jewish state, which is a theocracy. The biggest threat to Israel was the uprisings in Egypt and Tunis and the various countries. They are far bigger threat to the Israelis than the Islamic Republic of Iran. The first demonstrations against the Israeli embassy in Egypt followed the overthrow of Mubarak. So they're tied up together. Um, getting back to the Golan Heights, the Golan Heights, of course, doesn't play now any military role. Military speaking, it's an advantage for the Israelis. Today, it's not so important. They have a lot of water there that's being used by almost exclusively by the Israelis. I think it's, uh, more importantly, I think it's a way to make a deal of peace against land with Syria in the future. Even so, we'll, there's no possibility of the Israelis handing back the Golan Heights back to Syria. Now, I haven't been able to counter everything about Syria because it's a vast topic. But it's you wanted to... very, very confusing but, uh, topic. If you wanted to 
query or yeah no i just had some questions there about what you were saying about the assad regime or at least this the, the, the sun the presence yes uh, Assad yes. Bashar he took Al-Assad. over in 2000 yeah 2002 well it's 15 years it's quite a while mm. now but uh, he had a privatization agenda i didn't know that i assumed that the fact that the Iraqis were referred to under Saddam were referred to as the Ba'athist Party, mm-hmm. Ba'athist Socialist Party, and the Assad also refers to his party as the Ba'athist Socialist Party. I, I assume that there would be some element of nationalization in Syria, but maybe this is part of the reason, apart from the fact that Iraq has an awful lot of oil, why the West could do business with Assad and couldn't do business with Saddam, that Saddam was a nationalizer. Especially well, that's of true. oil. That's right. That's right. And the Syrians, despite, I mean, merely calling yourself socialist doesn't make you socialist. And many so-called socialist parties, as we know in this the, this country, have been at the forefront of economic liberalism. Privatisation. Have been privatisation. Well, so was Bashar Assad. This idea that somehow he's somehow progressive. He wasn't. How about his father? Well, his father was an 90s. even bigger mongrel. In fact, yeah. he ended up killing more Palestinians than the Israelis, which was quite some achievement. But he was not, he didn't nationalise. Uh, I, no. I don't know, I'm really, I'm No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm yeah. unclear, I'm unclear yeah. on that. I do know that whatever nationalisations had take place were reversed mm. in the early two, two, 2000s. Because I do believe that a big part of the, re- well, the reasons, and as opposed to the stated reasons for war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq, is that they have oil, obviously, that's the primary one. But the thing is that they nationalise the oil. It's in their own national hands, as opposed to, for instance, the Saudis, who work with the Seven Sisters, the big oil companies. Well, that's right. Well, one of the first tasks of the American when they actually conquered Iraq Mm. was to shelve out the oil to to Mobile and... Mexico and all the rest Yeah, of and they secured the oil ministry and the That's oil good. installations right. and left the museums to be looted. That's right. Uh, exactly. But, yeah, also just to quickly, Chris, uh, on 1956 you mentioned the United States backing Israel since 1956. Now, we know that back during the Suez Crisis, the, it was the Anglo-French who were working with the Israelis against Egypt. Yes, yes. And the US and the Soviets famously... You know, didn't actually. Well, I think the Soviets were given some back, backing to the anti-Israel side, but not a side, but not a great no, deal. No. But the United States, the fact that they didn't come in on the side of the Anglo-French. No, but they began their massive aid. In, it be, it would say, you would say it began then. I did. did 1956. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just a couple of questions there, and uh, yeah, also about the. Um, so the Free Syrian Army is largely disaffected Baathists, is it? Well, initially it was, and initially. Uh. The protests in Syria, despite what we hear, weren't led by ultra-Muslim mm. fundamentalists. Mm. They were people who were opposed to the Saudi regime. They weren't supported from outside. And they had slogans like, uh, we want democracy. Uh, you know, people should live together in yeah, peace. Yeah, but what's democracy? <laughs> well, in other words, yeah. and they, they like weren't... socialism, isn't they it? Weren't, well, they weren't actually simply demanding their sect... Hmm. Dominance. They want. They wanted. You know, something slightly. They wanted more democratic. They wanted people's rights. Now, there would be some socialist elements within there, but it was essentially a secular protest against Assad. Hmm. But Assad feared the secular protesters more than he feared the fundamentalists. Hmm. And he wanted. And the situation where there was two alternatives to him wasn't tolerable. And he wanted the only alternative him to be Muslim fundamentalist. Well, you get the two alternatives to fight amongst each other. This is well, that's one advantage. <laughs> but, but he didn't want 
a secular, reasonable-looking, popular alternative to him because hmm. that could explain the end, and nor do the United States. Yeah, and I was just going to say about... Um I forget what I was going to say about the Free Syrian Army, though. Can I, um, can I just make one comment about th- this business that's going on in um, Sydney, where they're harassing you know all the Muslim youth over the you know tragic shooting of the uh, of the police accountant? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it. They, they will say, "Oh, it's radicalisation." Mm. You know, as if well, it's religious education and skills. I don't think it can be too supportive of it. Well, I no, 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 no. But <laughs> it's but, religious education where it ends up killing people. But yeah, go on. Well, I mean, the fact is that quite apart from any questions of whether they're being radicalised to be radical Muslims, the fact is that the <laughs> working class youth, Muslim or otherwise, face a horrible future in this society. No wonder they are alienated. No chance of employment. Financial insecurity, lack of a decent education, no possibility of owning or often even renting their own home, and little access to culture and entertainment, daily press suggesting that they're all terrorists and demeaning them in, in every possible way. So it's no surprise that youth in general feel alienated and that in particular Muslim youth feel completely. Can you read the paper? There's just hatred on every part for for them for the mere fact of them being Muslims. Yeah, I still think that we should probably condemn religious education for children in schools, oh. and we should probably also condemn we should, we murder. Should stop it! <laughs> yeah, quite, quite. I'm, not I'm, I'm, we should have secular, free, compulsory education. No, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I may just uh, put in a bit of a plug here for the Railway House Trivia Night, which is coming up. And this um, is to fund new programs for families and for young people from the Princess Hill Public Housing Estate. Now, it's $25 per ticket or 160 bucks for a table of eight. And um, so it's auction, there's raffle. It runs between 7 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And it's on Saturday, the 31st of October. Halloween. Saturday the 31st. Saturday the 31st of October from 7pm to 11pm at St. Michael's Church Hall. How's about that? Halloween in a church. But anyway, St. Michael's Church Hall, 14 McIlwraith Street, Princess Hill, which is North Carlton. Oh, we can give that a, a, a reference okay. nearer to the date. Yeah. People, it's 10.30. It's your turn to ring up. You can talk on any topic, whether we've talked about it or not, whether you agree with us or not. The number to ring is 9419 uh, 0-1-5-5, 9-4-1-9, 0-1-5-5, and Jan very kindly will take your calls. It was lovely to see some listeners at the uh, Marxist Cowboys film night the other night, including Jan, who's waving, and John. So a uh, good night was had by all. And if you want a copy of the three films, they're all on one DVD, and it'll cost you $5 from either 3CR or International Bookshop. So we'll wait until we get our first caller through. The number to ring is 94190155. 94190155. Because the business was being done with Assad and, and, and his father Assad before him. And the thing is that it, it does seem that the regime that the, the regimes of the West goes against, like, for instance, Nasser in Egypt way back in the mm-hmm. 50s and continuing, or Saddam Hussein for so many years, is these regimes which nationalise. They keep out capital. Well, I think any That's regime it. that is going to show itself independent, independent of the United yeah. States, whether they're nationalising or not, if they're nationalising, even worse. Well, it's the US, but it's international <laughs> capital. Well, I mean, international capital. Well, true, 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 true. 
that it's uh, the, the fact of that independence and the fact of that, hey, you're not going to be making money in this place. And that's the no. bottom line. No, well, that, that's right. That's for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, they, you know, they, so they'll, they'll do a deal with any regime, no matter how evil and unscrupulous. Oh, yes. Well, I know. mean, despite the protestations of being for liberty and mm. democracy, you only have to look at who's there, apart from Israel, mm. <coughs> which barely qualifies as a democracy. Saudi Arabia certainly does not. Mm. And they are able to continue their quite evil regime to the tune of 4 to $5 billion a year from the United States. They make no pretense of democracy. That's no, one, zero. That's the only thing you can actually say about the Saudis. Well, they don't, they don't, they don't pretend Well, democracy. it would be fairly difficult. It'd be very hard. While you're busy cutting people's heads off and crucifying them for Christ's sake, as they're about to do with some young bloke who's a protester. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it's, it's a sword democracy. So as long as your name is sword then you're OK. I mean, it's the only country in the world which is actually named after the ruling family. Well, it's a family enterprise. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.